everybody and welcome to Fintech Insider After Dark. I'm Simon Taylor and today we're doing the live show Better, Faster, Stronger. We're putting financial services through the ringer. How do we rate its performance in the past year? What should it stop doing? What does it need to start doing? And what should it continue doing? We're going to talk about all this and much, much more on today's Fintech Insider. <laughs> Some of you may have seen our advertisements and been expecting one David Breer, but he can't be here tonight, but he's here in spirit. So David, we love you and sorry you couldn't be here. Um, as mentioned, we are gonna talk a little bit about where financial services is today and what it should stop, start and continue. We cannot do this alone. So I'll be joined by an expert panel, but also the experts, the FinTech insiders, the audience here in this room and those of you at home. So. For those streaming across the world, we've got some instructions for how to use a bit of software called Mentimeter. So, uh, what you need to do is simply pop menti, M-E-N-T-I dot com into your device and enter the code. Are you ready for this code? 10196964 to join the conversation. Should have all of that behind you as well. So I'm just gonna continue as you guys do it, scan your QR codes. Um, as you guys are doing that, I'm just gonna introduce some of my colleagues and co-hosts to go through this. So can everybody give a warm welcome to my co-host, the one and only Jason frickin' Bates, co-founder <laughs> and deputy CEO of 11FS. <laughs> I get a new middle name. My, yep. my mother will be so proud. Yep, Jason freaking Bates. It's nice <laughs> to have you. How are you doing? I'm good. Good, 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 good. Uh, excited to be back at doing an After Dark? Yeah, and thank you for coming out. Uh, uh, it's amazing to do an like, in-person experience thing. Um, we're not alone. It's not just the two of us, thankfully. Um, we are joined and making a welcome return to After Dark is Louise Smith, who's Chair of Innovate Finance and Chief Digital Officer at Lloyd's. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. One job wasn't enough, eh, Louise? No, it's great, <laughs> great to have you with us. And making their first appearance at After Dark, we are delighted to be joined by Matt Henderson, who is a mere business lead of Stripe. Matt, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Thank Excited. you so much for joining us. All right, let's get on with the show. So, what is your score for the financial services industry in 2021? Let's start by looking under the hood of financial services and assessing what we're dealing with here. We want you to give the financial services industry in 2021 a score out of 10. Nice and simple. It could have been out of 11, but you know we'll go, we'll go with 10. We'll keep it classic. One to six being negative or underperforming. Seven to eight being okay and nine to 10 being positive or great. Uh, we'll be asking our panel their thoughts and while we're discussing, uh, we want you guys to start casting your votes, which I can kind of see is already coming in. So keep casting those votes, folks. And whilst you're doing that, um, Jason, let me start with you. What score would you give financial services industry over the past year? Is this like one of those performance reviews where you always go for the seven and eight? Like, yeah. how are you doing? Oh, seven and eight. <laughs> Room for improvement, but pretty solid performance. Um, I, th I think it really depends on what you, what you define financial services as. There are so many different segments, so many different sizes of, of competitor out there. Um, you know, on one hand, you've got the big incumbents. Have they really been pushing great, you know, innovation recently? No. Have they kept the lights on? 
Yes. I mean, they've had to move from people working down in Canary Wharf and out in branches to a branchless, largely digital, um, you know, customer base while the world's been on lockdown. So I've got to think that, you know, have they been pushing things along? No. Have they really changed a lot of things internally in order to make that work? Yes. So I'm going to give them an eight. On the startup side, or not even startup now, we're into scale-up territory. We're into Decker unicorns becoming industry players in the, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So there's a maturity there now. They're no longer the young upstarts. They're major players in the industry. And then you've got DeFi and NFTs. Well, they've been smoking something this year. That's, that's a whole new world. I'm sure we'll get into that. Sam. I was going to say, we're going to come back to some of the buzzwords and, and some of the things we're going to talk about. But uh, Louise, how do you reflect on that? I mean, we can see some audience scores coming in. Are you, are, you, uh, are you with that? Are you in the sort of middle category, the seven to eight? Or, or what are your thoughts? No. <laughs> <laughs> so if we take financial services as a whole, so Jason talked about banks. I've just done a stint in insurance so when we tend to think about financial services and banks or payments, which I'm sure we'll also get into. So if I think about it, I think in a domestic market, so in the UK at the moment, I think we're falling behind, actually. Um, I think Jason's right. I think there's been some fantastic stuff done to kind of like manage the last two years. And who hates the phrase in the pandemic and as we come out of the pandemic? Because it's a terrible phrase, because actually a lot of this stuff we've been talking about for years and well ahead of the pandemic. I just think it's accelerated a lot of that. So whilst there's been some incredible stuff to keep the lights on, keep things moving, keep basics, but also secure, um, yeah, it's good, but is it really driving the change that we need across financial services, particularly to get more people accessing them, safe lending, uh, which I worry about, and also, I think we're falling behind on inclusion and accessibility, which I think we'll talk about. So I think on a domestic side in the banks, I think we're falling behind. On insurance, I see appetite. And now it's whether we can actually move forward uh, quick enough. And then in the startup or scale-up world, uh, particularly given my role with Innovate Finance, I'm seeing tons of movement, but they're all being acquired or partnering with US uh, companies. You'll have seen Cedars today. Uh, and actually, that's gut-wrenching, given that it was blocked uh, on the UK side. So I worry that we're falling behind. And I think you'll see more people coming into the domestic market because they're not seeing the challenge there. So I'm going to give it, that was a lot of words, but I'm going to give it about a six, five or Ooh, six. Oh, a little bit lower, a little bit lower, five or six. And Jason was hovering around the eight. What about you, Matt? I, well, I thought Lou was going to start lower, but... Um, <laughs> Part of what I love about financial services is that I think it's still a four. And it's like it's valuable to be self-critical as a company, as a person, and as an industry um, because it means that you're really trying to change things. And um, yeah, especially if you look globally in financial services, um, there's so much of the world where it is just extremely difficult, even if you're an internet business, to sell your stuff. Um, so uh, Stripe obviously works a lot in payments and payments is still not really like a finished thing across the world. And so there's still a lot of globalization that's still left to happen. Um, but then looking in other parts of finance, you have situations where tons of small businesses um, that want to borrow money um, will find that like they, they get greeted with a, oh, you don't have three years of history or, or fill out this paper form and we'll come and meet you and 
it, it, it's just there's still a lot of change to happen um, for you know, and and that's a, and that's an exciting thing. I, I love that. Um, there's still so much more to do, so let's give ourselves a low rating because it's almost like digital financial services is only one percent finished, which is <laughs> not the strapline of any company you may have heard of. Um, all right, thank you guys so much. So can I, can I summarize that as four, eight, and six? Five. Uh, yeah, Five. which which Five. kind of kind of kind of says. Yeah, that's where the audience was. But I wonder if this poll behind me also says, to Jason's point, if you give people an option between one and ten, they tend to land around seven or eight. Who knows? We, well, I think there are 15 people who are probably from the big banks in here, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> marking nine out of ten. All the big insurers, as they said. <laughs> All right, I'm going to move us to the next piece. We've established that financial services currently doing, I guess, more or less okay, um, and it's it's kind of in the middle. But what about goal setting? Let's 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 run a little bit of a retro here, shall we? Um, and let's start with this a... is that personal like <laughs> uh, development thing, isn't it? This is personal <laughs> yes. development for an industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's start with the word stop, which is just a fun word to say. Um, so we've put together a list of suggestions for what financial services needs to stop completely in 2022, which includes QR codes. I like QR codes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that. Jargon, bank branches, Finfluencers, whatever they are, um, overhyped IPOs, and we're asking our audience and on the live stream to vote now, so audience get voting. All right, so we can see at the moment that, ooh, it's a pretty even split. Apart from QR codes and the audience is with Lou. <laughs> yeah, QR codes don't need to stop. Lou, do you want to just unpack that point about why you like QR codes? Just, they're, they're all right in the right situation. <laughs> Which is, I mean, we've all know, been that's, using that's them the last two years, haven't we? We're all used to checking in and they're on your beer labels. Yeah. Do you know, <laughs> do, do you know what? Like, if that's the best thing we can say about them, they're all right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I want to be as a technology. But, but do you not think, you know, on the hype cycle in the UK, they're kind of passe because we tried to use them quite a few years ago and they're probably before their time. Like go over to Asia, QR codes are massive. I Huge. mean, they are ridiculous. Huge. They are the, the payment uh, yeah. kind of rails or, or indicator that, that then connects you to something. Um, but I think we've, we're marred by memories of something that didn't work so many years ago. I think my... Uh, my wife only discovered recently that the iPhone app has a QR code reader. Uh, the iPhone photo app actually has QR codes it's built in. Because you've been downloading the app for yeah. QR reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bless them. But so the audience has now... <laughs> the audience has decided that jargon is the okay, thing yeah. that absolutely needs to stop. And I think we'd all agree there. Matt, what are your thoughts on uh, financial services jargon? Um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of extend the point a bit to include obfuscation because sometimes I think the jargon is designed to just sort of make people uh, look away from the fine print. Um, the classic example for me is when, when I see people um, getting um, fee-free foreign exchange in an airport and I just kind of wince because I know that the spread on the exchange rate is like 15%. They're still getting you with the spread, and, yeah. And there's, it's like the, the way that it's communicated is just so misleading. And um, th those are the sorts of practices that I think are um, kind of short-termist and ultimately um, part of the reasons for my four, by the way, as well. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and then elsewhere in jargon, 
land, you know, sometimes it's not about obfuscating stuff, but it still can be alienating. And, you know, we've seen in other tech sectors that, um, you know, some parts of the population will be sort of afraid to try things. And so now that finance is a tech sector, we we need it to be as um, inclusive as possible and as welcoming as and, possible. And speaking to inclusivity, my show notes, thank you, producer Laura and, and all of the team that puts these together. Um, a study by HSBC found that women find financial jargon more off-putting than men, with more than a third of women, 35%, saying they found it stopped them getting into investing, uh, which I think is to the point you were making, Lou, uh, about inclusion. Before I come to you on that, um, I loved the idea of Jargonland being like a weird theme park, by the way. (laughs) I heard that and I had to say that. Um, (laughs) But uh, Jargon and uh, inclusion, thoughts on that, Lou? So I talked about this a a lot recently because I think we have tons to do to still get financial services to people that need them Mm -hmm. in a really transparent, immediate and accessible, inclusive way. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we also think some of the tech that we now have actually solves a lot of those problems. But we talk about it in a way that's actually reserved for the few. So how many of us have been at conferences? I did one recently on AI. I did the keynote and I honestly didn't understand the next agenda item, which was about something to do with paradigm shifts that reincarnate my nan. So, and I literally, <laughs> literally, like we said, and I, if we really believe these things can actually solve massive societal problems as well as economic, then we have to start talking them about them in a way that people get it. Otherwise, it still becomes a reserved or boundary-driven piece. And I think we're at an inflection point now where talking about this stuff, you know, you've got startup scale-ups, you've got innovators who can start to say, well, actually, I can start to solve this stuff over here, whether that's financial literacy, that's getting safe lending to people, more people through uh, into what we call financial services or getting access to it. You then translate that to the workplace how many of us are in meetings, but you don't want to say, oh, I don't really understand a word that they've mm-hmm. just said? Uh, so often. And uh, the thing, there's so, so many studies, uh, Jason, you've talked about this many times, that uh, people don't understand, most people don't understand percentages and APRs. They want to see things in plain numbers. And yet, in many cases, the regulation requires us yeah, to, to do true. that. So there's, it's not all the, the, the organization's fault uh, in these. Um, I just want to talk about Finfluencers, which is currently second to jargon. Um, so in April, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK warned social media sites that it may take action if they continue to promote risky, sometimes fraudulent investments to inexperienced consumers. And we've also seen the rise of the financial services influencer on YouTube talking about uh, stocks and and, and many, many other things. Um, Matt, do you want to talk to me about influencers? Do you think there's a role for these types of people? And and is there a risk there as well? Do we need to stop it entirely? Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of bad things happening and so um it, it's it's uh it's kind of outside my field of expertise of like how to stop it um because there's you know there's clearly a lot of bad activity happening um you often hear examples of people that have been misled with their pensions or um with kind of uh, investment scams of one kind or another um the um uh, on the other hand, you also um, have a lot of sort of blogs and kind of Martin Lewis style 
um, information. <laughs> this could be a good reaction. <laughs> um, that, um, that, that probably helps people to, to um, enter some better habits and to be more and, and learn what an APR is. And, and things like that. So, so you know, it's it's not a question of not having it. It's a question of trying to control it in some way. It's a double-edged sword, I guess, isn't it? I, I guess we've got a generational thing as well, though, because I think a lot of the, the problems with influencers that you might see on Instagram or TikTok or wherever, where actually there are people now whose business is to drive traffic somewhere, you suddenly get in a regulated industry marketing at arm's length. So where, the, where you might be able to go to a bank and say, look, I see you ran this advertising campaign. You know, what, what were you really meaning there? And, and the control of that advertising campaign is strong because compliance are all over it. Now, when I'm incentivizing someone to get you to sign up to my prepaid card or my new challenger bank, then suddenly the, the controls are much looser. And that person is obviously incentivized by getting signups. So of course, they, they know nothing about the regulatory world and what they're allowed to say and what they aren't. And so they might say, this is a fantastic investment. Like I'd put all my money in. I'd mortgage my house to invest in this. And suddenly red lights are going off all over the uh, FCA saying, you know, what's going on? What did you say? It's like, well, we didn't say it. You should this absolutely dip into this latest meme stock. Like a hundred, that's not financial advice. You should not <laughs> do that, people. Please, please don't do that. I, I'm just going to, Move us on, because we do want to go to the audience here. I'm going to recap, uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, what does financial services need to stop completely in 2022? Jargon wins with 27% of the vote. Uh, Finfluencers was second with 26% of the vote. Overhyped IPOs, which we didn't have a chance to get to, was third with uh, 25%. Bank branches only got 17%. So, you know, we, we probably still need some of those, or at least they're, they're not as bad as jargon. Um, and QR codes, we don't seem to mind as an industry. That's pretty good. All right, we're going to get our audience's opinion on this in the room. So raise your hand if you have a question uh, or uh, any another suggestion for our quit list. What would you like to see financial services stop doing other than people with podcasts asking you to put your hand up? Because right? <laughs> I see zero hands up right now. Anybody wants to join in, you're more than welcome to. Our, our roving producer, Laura, has a microphone at the front, so please do please do shout out. Go on. Who's going who's gonna to be that guinea pig? Right there at the back. Awesome. Thank you for being first. Somebody always needs to be first. I appreciate that. What do we need to stop? Thank you. One word, PDFs. Oh. <laughs> uh, thoughts on PDFs? I mean, that P says everything you need to know about PDFs. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's PDFs for what? Because it's always interesting when you're thinking about, you know, we're moving away from bank statements or we're moving away from forms uh, and suddenly you get a PDF via email. You think, what's the way of doing it? Or CSV files. I'd actually quit CSV files. Yeah, I'm files. with you on that. Like, yeah. what, the, what the hell is that going, you know, happening yeah. with that? I think it, I was reflecting, it's the same as QR codes, isn't it, really? When they're used in the right way, we're all a little bit, it's all right. This is good in use of it. I, I think I'm with Jason on uh, the, the CSV files, but I... I'm all right with PDFs. I'm all right with them. Yeah. <laughs> They're all right. QR codes, PDFs, just, living just life on the edge. PDFs? But I did think a Finfluencer was an outfit. So I had to Google it. <laughs> you know, and I was, I was a little bit worried about what's that? So, yeah, but no, PDFs are all right. 
So I'm imagining some party now where PDFs are hanging out with QR codes. <laughs> now we've got a QR code on a PDF and then we're off into the digital world. Matt, thoughts on PDFs? Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, f I'm fine with them. It's been, like, the list so far has been very concrete. I thought yeah. people were going to get kind of meta. Yeah, let's get meta. Um, in fact, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> Laura, you have one more for us. Uh, perhaps it counts as a, a subset of jargon, but initialisms and acronyms and backronyms, which are even worse. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm with you on that. Acronyms. Do we hate that more than jargon? Mm. Which is your least favorite acronym? So the person in the audience, actually, have you still got your microphone with you? Um, particular uh, worst offender of acronyms. Is it PSD2? I mean, PSD2 is the one that freaks the most people out. But I think the biggest problem I've found is I work in the data industry. And when we see... And you know, an initialism in banking and consumer banking that is used with a completely different meaning in insurance or credit or something else, and nobody's you know created an acronym com committee uh, <laughs> to figure out what it actually means across every industry. God, that acronym committee sounds like a wild party. <laughs> I bet well, they have PDFs and QR codes. Well, well we know that guy who's on the um, Unicode uh, emoji committee, don't yes. we? So maybe they could double and actually do, do the acronyms as well. Replace acronyms with... Emoji. Emoji. You heard it here first. <laughs> Science needs to happen. Have we got one more, Laura, or are we uh, out of questions? We got one more, I think. Right, let's, let's run to that. The arbitrary removal of vowels from firms' names. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that applies outside of financial services, doesn't it? It's just like... I am really struggling with the pronunciation now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, it makes it look like I have wind ever trying to say that company now. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no clue what you're talking about. I'm so confused. We know. I'll tell you later. All right, cool. That's, that's one for after the pod. All righty. Well, thank you, audience. Uh, give yourselves a round of applause. That, that, was, that was pretty muted. I don't think the audience think they did a good job. No. Like, what would the audience give themselves out of 10? That's what I would have done. Uh, all uh, Let's move on to our second goal. What needs to be improved upon? So what do we need to improve in 2022? This is um, often the New Year's resolution is like renewing the gym membership. But what can you actually get better at in 2022? What about work-life balance? What about financial education and inclusion? tackling climate change, integrating open finance, or good old mobile app security. Uh, so the suggestions are on your screen. Get voting. I'm going to come to you guys. Um, maybe let's start with Matt on this one. Where do you think we should be improving next year? Is it any of these or something else? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fan of open finance. Um, I think it has a ton of potential, and, and we're only just getting started, so I'd love to see... Um, sort of a continued wave of change there, um, especially in um, the way that authentication happens. And so, um, you know, that's exciting for me. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, given that that one was a lot smaller, I'm curious to hear about some of these others. Yeah, so um, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, financial education and inclusion has around 39% of the vote. Tackling climate change has about 31 and integrating open finance has about 20%, 19%. So uh, financial education and inclusion, Lou, you mentioned we were going to mention that. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on what the industry can do better? So I think narrative's a big one. I do think we're falling back. I, I don't know what you guys think in the audience, but I think over the last couple of years, 
we fell back a bit on the diversity and inclusion, uh, both in the workplace, but also then that gets reflected into the very people that we serve our customers. Um, that feels we need to think about how do we make sure that we're not leaving anybody out of the room. And I do worry about that one. Um, it'd be interesting to see what you guys think when we get to the Q&A. So that is one, there's always financial literacy, but there's a ton of stuff coming through on that, which then actually links back to open finance because I actually think it has a massive role to play mm. on solving for this very segment. Uh, and I, I, I'm still with Matt on how mush we can push that over the next couple of years to actually get um, access. We can start to deliver services to more of the vulnerable groups. We can actually get more people, as I keep saying, through financial services and getting access to that in a safe way. Digital identity is absolutely critical and underpins a lot of it. But the thing I do, I don't know why it's worrying me and I've still not pinned it down as much as I'd like to, but it's almost like in our diversity groups now, we're even pitting against each other in those. That bothers me a lot. And we're almost creating stereotypes within those groups. Uh, and I think that's something we've got to be really reflective of as we move back to a workplace where we will be in a physical environment as we are today, but we will also have people not necessarily in the environment. And how do we make sure we're going a lot deeper and broader in how we think about serving our people, but also uh, looking after our employees. It's just one that bothers me, but it feels we're going the wrong way. Mm. No, I completely agree. Um, Jason, what are your thoughts maybe coming to um, some, of, some of the other topics on here? Well, um, I don't know. I, so financial education and inclusion, I've got, a, I've got a problem with, because I think if you want to be educated, there's plenty of information out there. There really is. Like, if you really wanted to learn about personal budgeting or financial management, there's information out there. It's not like it's hidden away somewhere. So for me, it's not, I don't think more of that works because generally people don't like school. They don't want to go back to school to learn it. And they'd rather spend their time watching YouTube videos or playing something else than actually learning about that stuff. So for me, that outcome is delivered by um, products and services that actually structure people's financial management in a way that just makes it easier for them. So envelope budgeting, you know, 50, 30, 20, however you want to look at it. Actually, there are ways that people who manage their finances well, just very simple ways, not talking about Excel and making a budget, but just putting money aside in different ways. Yeah. And then when you get into that, then it becomes more training. It becomes more structural benefits. And especially for, I don't know, um, people who've dropped out of education or poor or, you know, uh, have uh, are not into the let's work out the mathematics behind this, but just want to live day to day, then that's great. Now, the problem is, I guess the dirty secret is financial services makes a lot of money uh, out of lending where it probably shouldn't. And while we might say, well, credit's great and it, you know, it can be used really healthily, by and large, buy now, pay later for a new pair of jeans from ASOS is not a great, um, you know, a great proposition for many people, especially when they can't put their finger on, out of my salary, how much is committed to bills and to a variety of other expenses that happen month to month. How much is really my discretionary income? When people don't know that, actually, it's easy to click on the, well, I'll, you know, pay £10 a month for this. 
which was to lose point about the role that open banking and open finance can play in helping really people understand what they're committed and also make sensible product design decisions that don't educate you but that make it easier to land in the right place, which I think is a, a really good point, Jason. It sounded um, like a call for regulation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Um, do you think no, I think it's a call for better product design. Right. So I don't think it's, for me, it's forcing it. But I think that intelligent services, products that you can create that provide that need, that show right. that, that make it easier, should be, in a capitalist society, more successful. Yeah, rather yeah. Because it, I want clarity with, with effortlessness, with simplicity, rather than make it complicated for me. Teach me how to do personal budgeting and then give me a current account doesn't work for me as a, as a construct. <laughs> as a model. And, and so if you look at uh, a lot of the uh, newer apps like uh, Plum and Snoop or in the US, copilot.money, customers don't talk about how well they were able to manage their budget. They talk about how much money they saved and how much better off they were at the end of the month. So it's that outcome focus always with these things and better product design, as we say. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes on this one. Um, Matt, I wanted to come to you on tackling climate change. It's, it's really, uh, it's second here only to uh, education and inclusion and such a key trend. And I know Stripe's doing a lot of work yeah. in that space. Yeah, it, it's interesting, um, partly because, so I keep a list of um, things that I was completely wrong about it's quite informative, actually, and yeah. the, the list includes some um, some real turkeys. Um, but anyway, one recent one was I kind of, I really underestimated the degree that businesses that were starting to set up payments with Stripe would embrace this this notion of setting aside some of the transactions to go into a Stripe into a climate fund. Um, but a lot of businesses have um, in the. Part of what it is just reinforced to me is the degree that if you make things easier, it it actually it it can happens. make a lot of difference. And so you think of so many causes in the world that um, the reason why sort of they they don't um, raise money or get the investment they need, you think it's because people aren't kind of altruistic enough or or, or whatever. But often there's just tiny bits of friction that once removed can really change things. It comes back to Jason's point on good product design. Yeah. Um, so th in behavioral psychology, we talk about defaults. Like by default, you can just take the, the thing that offsets your carbon. And if it's right there and it's so easy to do, you trip up and fall into doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and that all comes back to good product design. Uh, all right, let's get our audience's opinions again. Um, time to raise your hand if you have a suggestion for what needs to be done better. Extra credit for ones that are not already on there, but you can comment on one of those. So, yeah, there's uh, a couple of hands going up. Uh, producer Laura is winging the microphone to you as we speak. User feedback. We need to be better at user feedback. G uh, expand Give that us more. Point. Sure, so there could be two parts to this. So one is on your customer journey, how easy it is to make some suggestions about how the service could be optimized. And the other is how the data is looked upon as a whole. When you have that feedback, is it, do you have this holistic idea of what the problems are or is it spread across reviews? Um, it could be like surveys, yeah. you name it. It's getting closer to the customer in, in, I guess, a lot of ways, Lou. Yeah, I, I, I tried something different in 
the role I've just been doing in insurance. Uh, and we actually put the strategy out there in the public domain. We put the end-to-end -end customer journeys. And you could actually, it was like a, it was a bit of an immersive web experience. And you could click on the bit that you wanted to give feedback on. And given it's a market, you had different uh, participants within that. It kind of did and didn't work. So we didn't really get enough feedback for you to be able to make some decision points about it. It was useful, but kind of not. I've, I think research and user feedback and user research is a real skill. And I think the people who do it, and these guys do it really well, by the way, um, I will actually give them that on that point. But I think in terms of what these guys do, which I think is really powerful, is that observational research and user feedback. So how do you actually interact with the thing? But what do you really want to do with it? And that goes back to good product design. So good product design is actually really difficult to do because when it doesn't interfere with your life, it's great. But also you don't want to give somebody a 30 second thumbing experience on a mobile app and then go, here's a million quid, go buy a new house because you'd freak everybody out. So it's how do you actually get those right points within the journey? So I think, I think you're right. So I think your aggregate point, bang on right. I think research is a devalued skill if it's not careful. And if you look what's happened over the last two years, so many organizations got rid of their head of research and it was the very time they needed them. So there was this flood of fantastic skills into the market, which I couldn't get my head around. So mm. I think you're right, getting that is so critical to a number of these things that we've been talking about. Jason, we always talk about customers are very um, bad at um, building roadmaps, but very good at telling you their problems. And so fall in love with the problem, not the solution is, is such a key point. All right, time for one more question. Thank you. Um, yeah, building off of tackling climate change, uh, there's currently only 3% of households in the UK are properly retrofitted and considered energy efficient. To me, that kind of just indicates there's a huge opportunity to be able for lenders generally, uh, either fintechs, traditional, whatnot, to really tackle that. Um, I think that's something that needs to be definitely improved on, and they really need to get the ball rolling and turn from a niche uh, less of a niche and to more of a mainstream um, thing. Interesting. Thank yeah, you. we've seen so many lenders announce how much they're going to lend in climate change, but no products that actually put the pieces together. It's like, yeah. it's, it's the bazooka, isn't it, Mark? I think it, it's a great point because it, in the past, I think a lot of financial products were quite generic because that was the only way to efficiently deliver it. And so if you had asked a traditional bank a few years ago to loan for that sort of use case, they would have said, like, it's uneconomic for us to do so. Like, just the, the sort of the fixed costs of creating a program are too large for the size of the segment. Um, now, you get, in some cases, traditional banks, but, but also a bunch of startups that will pick an extremely narrow niche, and the whole economics are, are, have, just, have just changed. Um, I, I have seen it sort of first really emerge in, in B2B products, but I think there's tons of opportunity for that, so... Um, yeah, I'd, good luck if you're doing it. Yeah, All right. great. Oh, nice. <laughs> good, what, good what's work, the company guys. name? We'll give them a quick plug. Yeah, what, what's what's the company name? We'll give you a quick plug. On ladder. Have you got a QR code? Do you? <laughs> 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 that, that, that was awesome. <laughs>
Hello, I'm Stuart Barkey from Trustly, and we're delighted to be involved in such an exciting event. Trustly is the world's leading open banking provider. This means we offer account-to-account payments without the need for card or a wallet. This delivers the best payment experience at a lower cost for business. Trustly now processes about 30 billion euros worth of payments each year, and we're active across Europe, America, Canada, and Australia. Today, we're talking about how financial services can be better, faster, and stronger. For me, open banking is a key part of that, delivering better UX, faster payments, and stronger security. To find out more, visit our website, trusty.com, or contact me directly at stuart.barkley at trusty.com. Good evening. My name's Simon Turley. I'm the sales director at OneSpan. OneSpan helps protect organisations and individuals from digital fraud by establishing trust in people's identities, the devices they use, and the transactions they evoke. Today, OneSpan solutions are significantly reducing digital fraud whilst enabling compliance for more than half of the top 100 global banks, as well as thousands of financial institutions around the world. From adaptive authentication and digital identity verification to secure digital agreement automation and signing, our next generation solutions are delivered through our trusted identity platform. The trusted identity platform makes it easy to integrate new and existing technologies to better detect fraud and deliver a great user experience. And for more information on OneSpan, please visit our website at www.onespan.com. All righty. Thank you guys so much. All right. So it's time to move from what can be improved to what does the financial services industry need to start doing? What does it need to do next? Where should it be going? It's time to think big. Taking NFT seriously, that's an option. I, I would make that case <laughs> and I would make yeah. it seriously and it would take us a long time because it needs to be unpacked. Um, but it's time to think big. Uh, what are we going to branch out into 2022? Accountable ESG objectives. That'd be lovely. Um, central bank digital currencies, addressing the unbanked, taking NFT seriously or embracing biopayments. Audience, work your magic. What are we seeing? We're seeing... Accountable ESG goals get 20-30%, addressing the unbanked population globally about 35%. Um, central bank digital currencies, 20%. I did not see that one coming. And NFTs, 10%. 11%. That's that's a good sign, 11%. Uh, all right. Uh, Addressing the unbanked population globally. Um, Matt, do you want to talk to us about uh, that opportunity yeah. and, and how we could start going about that? Yeah. Um, so, so firstly, well, I, I don't have a stat off the top of my head to tell you about the size of it. Um, needless to say, it's very large. Part of the, what I can say is a bit about sort of some of the impact that it has. Um, you know, it's amazing when so, so Stripe acquired a company called Paystack uh, based out of Lagos, and um, it's amazing in talking to some of their users, the degree that um, changes to the financial infrastructure um, in Africa changes their addressable market and creates opportunity. And um, in some cases, the opportunity was really kind of micro-businesses that would never have existed, and it was sometimes, you know, the first time that a uh, a, a woman in a family now had an independent income and you can imagine the way that that changes um that that changes her life and and her family's life um other, in other cases it's um it, it means that a business that in the past like couldn't even sell to people on the other side of lagos and 
and now can sell to people, you know, all over the country or across the region. Um, and, and, you know, that, as it happens, the percentage of unbanked in Lagos is probably extremely low relative to the rest of Africa. Um, but, um, but, but tons of opportunity. And then in you, if you look at countries like the UK and the US, you've also got still these, like, folks that are left behind. And, um, and I think that the consequences of being left behind are going to get greater and greater because, you know, it, there was a, a sort of a realistic cash economy at one point in time, but the, the ability to participate in that, I think, is just going to erode. Well, especially if central bank digital currencies do come along and we yeah. start to see the complete removal of cash and, and demonetization that we saw in India. So there's, uh, according to Global Findex, about 1.7 billion adults remain unbanked. The Federal Reserve estimated there are 55 million unbanked or underbanked adult Americans, which accounts for 22% of U.S. households. So it's a really, really uh, large population. Um, and then the U.K apparently has an unbanked population of around 4%. So it, it, I think unbanked and underbanked is a broader yeah. definition yeah. than yeah. unbanked. But Luke, we know that falling towards the bottom of that can mean, yes, I have an account, but I'm, I'm still not able to, to, yeah. to get around. But, and then you start to see the other side of that, which is people... It, it, for me, it's about how do we get people into the system, get cash to them, get more people flowing through it. Because everybody wins, it's actually quite straightforward. And you actually, I mean, the argument is is right from a societal point of view and an economic one. Um, I, I don't have any stats. It's just I think I look at personally, and I talked about this on a podcast recently, which I found really difficult to do because I'm usually quite. Everybody thinks I'm this sort of openly Alan Carr sister lookalike type of thing, and you know, it's it's good though, isn't it that? It's old, but it's good. And it's, it's you kind of go, because my brother, he lost his daughter 30 years ago to a reckless driver. And at that point in time, quite rightly, financial whatever was not on his mind and he got into a bit of a mess. And still 30 years on, he can't get lending for a mortgage. 30 years on, works, policemen, all of this type of stuff, but he can't get lending. And that cannot be right. And it's something I feel really passionate about. My mom lost all of her savings through the financial crisis because of poor advice on unit trusts. And we've all got stories, particularly in the, I'm going to say the, in the pandemic, where, you know, we've had people who run businesses and we couldn't get cash through them quick enough. You think about insurance, we all pay insurance. Do we know where it goes? It goes back to the climate agenda. All of these things get connected up. So I am 1,000% with Matt around how do you get embedded finance, open finance, how do you get financial services more accessible? And I think it's going to shift to become through trusted sources, which might not be a bank. So I think we're going to see some of the brands, I know some of the retail insurers, particularly around health, they're getting really savvy about some of this stuff and how they start to get connected up. So it's something that those numbers are shocking and actually, what we need to do is look at how do we take some of these and connect them up and move them across? Because it can solve so much stuff. Absolutely. Sorry, oh, I got... I got no, 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 no. I'm here for got, it. I really am. I, I just need to do the hosting thing. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> accountable ESG objectives. We did touch on that a, a little bit before. I've got some stats here because I'm be the stat man. 
Um, so according, uh, investors with more than 100 trillion of assets under management have signed the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, which advocates for greater focus on ESG and governance uh, issues when investing. But according to research in 2019, investors who signed up to that did not improve the social and environmental performance of their investments. So like, are we just sort of creating things for people to sign up to so that they've got something to sign up to and then say we're going to... Um, look after all of these investments and then we've signed up to something but we've not done it are we is that where we are with this it's a tough question (laughs) (laughs) Um, i think what surprised me and delighted me is in the past few years consumers have been making their voice known by making decisions because in a market-driven capitalist society that's what moves the needle like people buy things those things succeed and away we go And so now, more than ever, people are using ESG credentials and looking at the companies they do business with. And that's having a real impact because suddenly it's not a uh, some corporate executive going, you know, let's let's change the world. Yeah. But what about profits? It's that profits are connected to ESG objectives because people like you in the audience are making the decisions to make that happen. But of course, with that, there's always this hawk and dove um, game theory where for every dove that's actually acting in in the best interest. There are hawks that are trying to game this system, that ultimately they're trying to make money from this without actually really managing any impact. So there's still a long way to go, but do we condemn that whole movement because of a number of players? It depends how many players that is and who's overseeing that and whether there's a regulatory Mm. requirement and a standard where actually you have to start saying, well, you say you're at this level, but actually an independent body needs to uh, agree with that. And and regulation comes because people abuse the system in some way. So I guess we'll find out how abused it is by whether whether we see more regulation on that. Indeed. All right. So we've got a couple of minutes left on this one. Um, The third option here was things that we need to uh, start in 2022 was uh, central bank digital currencies. Um, So the Bank of England has said a reserve backed digital currency could reduce commercial deposits at banks by up to 20%. Um, Central bankers were apparently meeting to discuss Britcoin, um, a potential name for the digital (laughs) currency. Sounds like a very bad boy band to me, but... um, And in October, Nigeria joined 14 other countries in entering pilot stages of their own central bank digital currencies alongside China, Sweden, South Korea, and 81 countries are exploring CBDC. So who wants to have a go at unpacking what a CBDC is and what does it actually show? Surely you do. Like, this is your your bit. I think this is you. Oh, okay. Damn it. I was you enjoying wanted us hosting. to say that, though, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I really didn't. It's, it's so much easier being the host. Um, look, producers prepare notes for you and everything. Uh, so central bank digital currency. Uh, so like notes and coins in your pocket, right? This is issued by a central bank, but deposits held at the bank, uh, they can be issued by a central bank, but they can also be issued by the bank itself. So banks create money when they lend. So most of the money you move and most of the money sitting in your bank account didn't come from the central bank. It wasn't printed in a great printer press somewhere. It was actually made up by the various banks that you use on a day-to-day basis. So when they say that a reserve-backed digital currency could reduce commercial deposits, what they're essentially saying is, imagine if we printed a lot more things like notes and coins, but they sat on your mobile phone instead and we could use them peer-to-peer. Would that compete with traditional banks? Yes, it potentially would. But would it offer a bunch of benefits, yes, it potentially would as a, as a payments upgrade. Uh, with all things central bank infrastructure, 
Like, how fast is this really going to happen to be able to solve a problem for consumers? We've been talking about bringing in new payments infrastructure in the UK for, for forever, and it looks like we're going to do it now in 2025. In the US, they have FedNow, um, and they're all talking about that. Where, but in China, they actually have the People's Bank of China has the um, digital currency electronic payment, which has transacted more than 10 billion US dollars worth. There's more than 100,000 users. So that is live and that is in production, and it can be used from everything like paying your bills to social welfare. So instead of receiving social welfare into a bank account, I would receive my benefits into this new digital wallet issued by the government. And like a physical wallet, I could use it in just about any store and anywhere. So maybe it'll be interesting, but uh, interested in your views from, from the panel. Um, I can jump in. I think it's got a ton of potential. I think it will, like, you look at the sort of the arc of cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain, like, it's it's not the fastest evolution in the world, right? It's taking time. Um, the setting aside some of the speculation movements, but, but the actual um, sort of use cases of the technology itself. Um, but I think this use case, will, I, I think, will actually emerge quite quickly, partly because uh, central banks are sort of, their, their hand is somewhat forced to do it um, because they get more control over money supply and so on and will otherwise um, be more threatened by the rise of stable coins that they have less control over. Um, and I think there's a couple of key things, you know, besides the holding of it that you, that you described. On the one hand, um, precisely because that, that global payments problem is sort of still unsolved, that there's so much fragmentation around the world, and, and this is a way to shortcut some of that, it will become easier and cheaper to send funds around the world. Um, and, then, and then the other one is, um, is just the... The way that um, it provides sort of confidence over stability, there's so many countries in the world where currency movements of 20%, uh, is it the lira is down 40%? I mean, you know, just dramatic changes. So uh, I think stable coins are going to have a role to play, whether, whether legally or illegally. Yeah, with, if I'm in a market with an unstable currency, being able to hold and transact and pay with something that looks like the US dollar is, is hugely exciting yeah. because it's much, much more stable. But, but, uh, but I think it's those unintended consequences and side effects, systemic effects at that level, which you just can't see. So, you know, do you want the government to be able to see exactly which vendors and where your money's gone? Most people wouldn't, but a central, a central bank stablecoin would, would be a privacy, would, would be a privacy issue. If, yeah. um, or if actually uh, we suddenly go through a financial crisis and everyone says, forget these banks. Like, I know, you, I know it's 85 grand like uh, FDIC or, um, or FSCS protection, but I'm going to move it to stablecoin because it's going to be you know, much better there. Then suddenly there are run, a run on banks are possible because everyone goes to the, the safest possible route. So suddenly there's a problem there. And there are all kinds of interesting effects as to what this would really mean if it's not only my country but other countries and suddenly you think, well, actually, UK is not doing very well, so we're going to move over to the US or, you know, I'm suddenly in, invested in other areas. Again, that's an, an issue for the control of the sort of money supply. And you can see there's this war between sort of control and, and the, the pushback against that, which is there are real use cases that that control can't always solve for where people have needs and that tension will play out. Or, or negative interest rates is another one. 
The fact that actually if you have a central bank currency and, and that's where you're in, then the government could then devalue that yeah. without you being able to you know, do anything about it. So I'm going to take us to the audience. We're going to ask a few more questions. Um, what should the industry start doing? This is your opportunity to really throw out some blue sky stuff. What's not happening that needs to happen? Uh, DeFi regulation. Here, here. Well said. Um, so, DeFi, decentralized finance, regulation. What did you um, What did you look for specifically with regulation? Uh, so, I work in the DeFi sector, and uh, just trying to get people involved in that is a nightmare because no one trusts it. And uh, you know, trying to operate in that area when there's no regulation is even harder. Should they trust it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, because they shouldn't trust banks. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Um, Sorry to turn this into a quiz. But. <laughs> we can get a beer and talk about this all night if you want. Yeah, um, yeah I think, uh, you know, having uh, decentralized uh, DAOs, things like that, it's going to make things a lot easier. It's going to be a lot easier to manage, a lot more transparent. Uh, I think uh, you're just going to be able to you know, see, that side of, see that side of it a lot easier than, uh, you know, the complication and jargon that you get with normal banks. Interesting, but we're talking about jargon and we've mentioned DeFi and DAOs. <laughs> I, 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 you're sort of damned in both directions, really, aren't you? Uh, thoughts on DeFi, anyone? I think it's the Wild West. I think it's the most exciting place to live in fintech at the moment. It has the most opportunities, the most amazing rethinking of what the financial services might be. But people go to prison, get killed, and, uh, and, and you know, you've got a criminal underworld, people being swindled, disappearing with millions. It really is the Wild West, which is not to say that the Wild West doesn't become San Francisco in some, at some point, but there's a long way between here and there. And so I'm with you that, you know, uh, it's super dangerous and, and super lucrative if you find the right thing now. But it's not for the general public, and 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 that's where the 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 amazing pull of DeFi is. It, it promises so much, um, but it's it's the wild west. Any any other thoughts? Oh, I agree with Jason. It's uh, but I was reflecting more around. We, we've we've used the term regulation a few times actually, and I do think there's something because I think the trouble is we're now explaining why that jargon's really complex rather than tackling it. So I agreed with you really wholeheartedly around actually I think regulation has a massive amount of play on a lot of these in terms of how do you make it more accessible understandable and everything else I, I think Jason's bang on right and he's way more of an expert than I am and the digital currency one blew my head slightly but thanks very much for that um, but it's around how do we how do the regulator get ahead so I mean we talk about having one of the most innovative uh, regulators and I think we do but it's how does it stay ahead yeah. and how does it actually push further into this? And we're going to see more of that. But it's a really tricky thing. Mm. But I, I do worry about, and, and again, we're going into acronyms if we're not careful, and we're going to have one just for the after dark session. Yeah. So I think it, it's one of those, but I'd love to see how do we actually make it a bit safer and less Wild Westy. Yeah, no, here, here to that. And I think the, the regulators do have a very hard job at it's the same really time. As, you know, they, they are worried about consumer protection. They're worried about making sure people don't, don't lose out. 
But at the same time, what about uh, sort of the reference from 1996 when uh, in the early days of the internet, the administration in the US, um, I think it was uh, Section 230. The idea of Section 230 was in the early days of the internet, publishers would uh, they took an approach of first do no harm, which unleashed a wave of innovation we now call the internet. And yes, there have been consequences to that, which we now need to put in place. But it was an interesting model to start to think about of how do we embrace that innovation. So uh, here, to, here to say, all right, we've got uh, another one from the audience. Yes. Uh, hello. Um, my name is David. I'm uh, visiting actually from California. Um, uh, maybe I'll give you a little uh, insight into what the zeitgeist is in California from a uh, decentralized finance perspective. So over the past year, in terms of uh, what we're focusing on in California, is there is a, an obvious uh, loss, an a exponentially increasing loss in confidence in the unit of account, the USD. It's accelerating to such a point right now where the USD is... Internally to our country, we're losing almost complete confidence in it in terms of its purchasing power and its holding power and how it's uh, created and distributed. So from a decentralized finance perspective, there is a massive push now to remove the unit of account, USD and transactions, and replace it with actual assets, physical assets that are represented using uh, blockchain technology, uh, non-fungible tokens, title, uh, we're, we're quickly moving, uh, I would say, from a Californian perspective, away from uh, the unit of account, USD. Um, I guess the, uh, the, the, the similarity here in the US, uh, excuse me, in the UK is uh, GBP, yeah. right? Total confidence, uh, total loss of confidence. That's where we're approaching very quickly in the United States. And I think you, you make a point there, that, which is, um, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And there are millions upon millions of people who live in that world perspective, and that may not be one you or I share or that exactly, most of this room exactly. shares. It's, but, exactly. It's but, a inter, uh, I would, a great analogy, it's interdimensional. We have half ooh. of California who Wow, nice. there's some jargon I like for you. That. I, I am it's, sorry, it's, I do have to it, grab yeah. one more question, but I think that was another vote for DeFi. Um, we've got one or two down at the front here, Laura, I think. We might be able to grab a, a couple this way. Uh, what do we need to start doing? Um, I worked at a company that was a founding signatory to the UMPRI, but that's not a shield for that company because they were kind of shit. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. What we need, and what the financial services need to start in 2022 and beyond, this is relating to the ESG goals, is like a unified set of standards for ESG because they don't exist at the moment. And a goal shouldn't really count if the goalposts are... 1,000 feet wide or 10,000 feet wide. You know, stocks can measure really highly on an ESG scale or really low, dependent on which provider you use. Yeah, there are many different scoring systems. So you can choose the scoring system you win at, um, which, is, which is, I guess, a hard point. But the old saying with standards is, we need a standard that unifies all of the standards, and now we have another standard that not everybody uses. <laughs> so it, it, it is a difficult thing to achieve, isn't it? I, I guess, um, any thoughts from the panel on, on standardizing? No? Um, I think it's necessary, but insufficient. Um, mm. We touched a bit earlier on the the way that, like, if you have well-intentioned investors, 
and and then you have investors who are ambivalent about the effect of the companies or activities they're investing in. Um, I don't know what the mix of those is, but I would have to assume that any there's not going to be that much of a disadvantage that the sort of bad companies are placed at. I mean, if you think about um, cigarette companies were able to maintain reasonable valuations for quite a long time um, past the point where some of the effects were quite clear. Um, so I think that you know you can still be you can still be a free market loving person and believe that there are externalities that need mm-hmm. to be taken into account. And so I think you need standardization and you need taxes or penalties or you know something. And just like that, we've got the goals for the industry going into 2022. So I think we gave financial services, what, a, a seven? It was a blend. It was four on one side, eight on the other. Yeah, so like, what, a six overall, <laughs> something in the middle of that? Ooh, a 6.5, no. according to um, my no. producer, Laura, who's rapidly entering those show notes in the absolute <laughs> start. Uh, not that I am Ron Burgundy, but I'm Ron Burgundy. I'm Ron Burgundy. Um, I, We've agreed that financial services needs to improve uh, inclusion. It needs to stop all things jargon. And I think it needs to start addressing the unbanked population globally. So that's it. The FinTech Insiders have spoken. Um, We've solved everything. Financial services will be better, faster, stronger. And that wraps up this episode of FinTech Insider After Dark. So thank you to the audience in person and at home. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you, our wonderful guests? Uh, Let's start with actually my co-host, Jason. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn, Jason Bates. Uh, Louise. Find me on LinkedIn, Lou Smith, because there's only my mom who calls me Louise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> See, I told you I was Ron Burgundy. I, I, I've known you for a while, Lou, and I still did it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, Matt. And Matt Henderson, also on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter because I'll just change the format, why not? Uh, or Simon at 11fs.com. Um, I want all of you to give a huge round of applause to our media and marketing team for putting this event together today. They do such a great job, and we couldn't do it without all of you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, And of course, uh, thank you to our audience. Thank you guys so much for being here. Alrighty, if you want to stay up to date on all of our content, you can follow us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. You can find us on uh, the 11FS YouTube and all of our uh, historic content there as well. Thank you again, and good night.